With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. Some ghosts are just picky, that's all. In our story, A Grammatical Ghost by Elia W. Petty, we get to see just how picky. Since our main characters are besieged by their specter on a constant basis in their home, I thought it might be fun to look up ghost stories from the COVID lockdown. Talk about a perfect setup for ongoing ghostly encounters. You can't leave, they can't leave. For those of us phobophiles, lovers of scary things, COVID lockdown would have been much better locked in with a ghost or two. But this is not the case for all. Here are some stories about spooks that didn't wear a mask. The following are excerpts from a New York Post article, People Stuck in Haunted Homes During Quarantine Report a Rise in Spooky Happenings. The article is by Natalie O'Neill. Coronavirus is spooky enough, but try living through lockdown in a house that's haunted. Oh, please. The unlucky residents of homes believed to have ghosts and ghouls rattling around say they have no way to keep themselves socially distant from the spirit world and have been subjected to an extra dose of paranormal activity during the coronavirus quarantine. Believers say they are experiencing everything from books flying off shelves to creepy cold brushes of air and pets behaving strangely. The more I'm stuck in this house, the more there's a feeling, said Kurt Schleiser, 56, of Tampa, Florida. He was forced to stay at home during the coronavirus in the notorious house where killer Victor Lakata slaughtered his parents, three siblings, and the family pooch in 1933. Yikes! That's a gruesome story I'd never heard. Let's take a detour and find out more. And warning, violent images ahead. On October 16, 1933, 21-year-old Victor Licata used an axe to murder his parents, two brothers, and a sister while they were asleep. All died from blows to the head. The next morning, police discovered a confused Licata in a bedroom of the family home. He was wearing clean-pressed shirt and trousers, but beneath the clean clothes his body was smeared in blood. Okada was never prosecuted for murdering his family. He was examined by psychiatrists 11 days after his arrest and was diagnosed with dementia praecox with homicidal tendencies. This made him overly psychotic with a condition that was acute and chronic. It was determined that he was subject to hallucinations accompanied by homicidal impulses and periods of excitement. He was committed to the Florida Hospital for the Insane in Catahoochee, Florida, on November 3, 1933. He escaped, was caught, and hanged himself in prison in 1950. I don't know about you, but I would say the chance of encountering paranormal activity in that house is extremely high back to the Lakata house. You notice all these weird supernatural things that you normally wouldn't, and in lockdown there's so much time to think about how scary they are. 
Slicer told the Post he tried to share the home peacefully with its spectral occupants amid the lockdown. I guess you could say I got to know my roommates, he said. They left this earth in stressful ways. They were murdered while they slept, and their time was cut short. So I tried to understand where they were coming from. Slicer, who bought the abode because he was a non-believer, now says he may have been dead wrong that ghosts don't exist. My dog, a boxer, sat in the bedroom where the mother was murdered and barked at the wall for no reason. It's not in his nature, he said. In the bathroom, I felt a coldness come over me, a cold brush of something walking by. In Los Angeles, Adrian Gomez also dealt with ghosts during the city's lockdown. He heard a doorknob in his home rattling vigorously and saw a window shaking so hard he thought it was an earthquake, making him think the house was haunted while stuck in quarantine. I'm a fairly rational person, said Mr. Gomez, 26. I tried to think, what were the reasonable, tangible things that could be causing this? But when I don't have those answers, I start to think, maybe something else is going on. Others report hearing disembodied voices, seeing shadowy figures and seemingly possessed electronics that turn on and shut off on their own. In Indonesia, an official actually punished quarantine violators by locking them in abandoned homes that were believed to be haunted. If there was an empty and supposedly haunted house in the village, we put people in there and locked them up, said Kuzdinar Untung Unisakawati, head of the Scragan Regency. Brett Underwood, 32, who lives in the western ghost town of Cerro Gordo, California, also had his run-ins with phantom-like creatures. Wait, you can live in a ghost town? Sign me up. Once in the middle of the night, he said books flew off his shelf and a visiting ghost hunter blamed the activity on two ghosts of children living in his closet. It was particularly challenging during quarantine because I didn't have anyone else here with me for comfort. When you're alone, it's even more frightening. This is ridiculous, but I still sleep with a golf club and the living room light is on. During the pandemic, reports of paranormal activity increased. When the world went on lockdown in March 2020, ghost hunters were inundated with requests to investigate apparent ghost sightings in people's homes, and psychics and mediums had quite a run on their services. One explanation for the increase is multilayered. People were less busy and spending more time at home, allowing them to access the spirit world more easily, said Erica Gabriel. Miss Gabriel is a spirit medium. The spirit world is always around us, she said, and our ability to tune into it in the quiet was heightened so much. Depending on their belief system, different people have different explanations for these upticks. But for the people experiencing paranormal events, the reasoning isn't so important. For them, the presence can be comforting in a time of immense loss. As one New Yorker put it, it's been impossible for me to navigate life in the city without feeling incredibly devastated by all we've lost in the COVID years. I definitely feel death and renewed vitality side by side. Also because of all the COVID deaths the pandemic brought, it's not surprising more people are reporting paranormal activity. As for myself, I wonder if because we were around them so much, spirits felt more comfortable reaching out to us. We all need company now and again. (music) 
are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. I found a true gem of a woman researching our author. Elia W. Petty was born on January 15, 1862, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She began writing short stories for newspapers and became a reporter with the Chicago Tribune. Later, she was hired by the Chicago Daily News. For a time, she was one of two female reporters for all of Chicago. In 1889, she moved to Omaha, becoming chief editorial writer on the Omaha World Herald. She wrote for magazines including Century, Lippincott's Magazine, Cosmopolitan Magazine, St. Nicholas, Wide Awake, The American Magazine, America, Harper's Weekly, and the San Francisco Argonaut. In 1888, she was commissioned by Chicago publishers to write a young people's history of the United States and wrote the 700-page The Story of America in four months. Born in the Gilded Age, Elia W. Petty stood at the door of the progressive era and held it open for a new generation of women who would continue to seek careers, gain universal suffrage for women, promote birth control, and fight vice, filth, corruption, ugliness, ignorance, and exploitation. Her intellectual background, her use of irony and humor, her ability to employ various genres and literary approaches, and her undaunted impertinence produced a strong voice on the Great Plains. As a result, she became a vital catalyst for social change and a successful role model for promoting personal and professional independence for women. A loving and beloved mother and wife and successful journalist, Petty proved that a woman, if she wanted, could have it all. And now, A Grammatical Ghost by Elia W. Petty. There was only one possible objection to the drawing-room, and that was the occasional presence of Miss Carew, and only one possible objection to Miss Carew, and that was that she was dead. She had been dead twenty years as a matter of fact and record, and to the last of her life sacredly preserved the treasures and traditions of her family, a family bound up as it is quite unnecessary to explain to anyone in good society, with all that is most venerable and heroic in the history of the Republic. Miss Carew never relaxed the proverbial hospitality of her house, even when she remained its sole representative. She continued to preside at her table with dignity and state, and to set an example of excessive modesty and gentle decorum to a generation of restless young women. It is not likely that having lived a life of such irreproachable gentility as this, Miss Carew would have the bad taste to die in any way unpleasant to mention in fastidious company. 
She could be trusted to the last not to outrage those friends who quoted her as an exemplar of propriety. She died very unobtrusively of an affection of the heart one June morning while trimming her rose trellis, and her lavender-colored print was not even rumpled when she fell, nor were more than the tips of her little bronze slippers visible. "'Isn't it dreadful,' said the Philadelphians, "'that the property should go to a very, very distant cousin in Iowa "'or somewhere else on the frontier, "'about whom no one knows anything at all?' "'The Karoo treasures were packed in boxes "'and sent away to the Iowa wilderness. "'The Karoo traditions were preserved by the Historical Society. "'The Karoo property, standing in one of the most umbrageous "'and aristocratic suburbs of Philadelphia,' was rented to all manner of folk, anybody who had money enough to pay the rental, and society entered its doors no more. But at last, after twenty years, when all save the oldest Philadelphians had forgotten about Miss Lydia Carew, the very, very distant cousin appeared. He was quite in the prime of life, and so agreeable and unassuming that nothing could be urged against him save his name, which, being Boggs, did not commend itself to the euphemists. With him were two maiden sisters, ladies of excellent taste and manners, who restored the Karoo china to its ancient cabinets and replaced the Karoo pictures upon the walls with additions not out of keeping with the elegance of these heirlooms. Society, with a magnanimity almost dramatic, overlooked the name of Boggs and called. All was well. At least to an outsider, all seemed to be well. But in truth, there was a certain distress in the old mansion and in the hearts of the well-behaved Miss Boggs. It came about most unexpectedly. The sisters had been sitting upstairs, looking out at the beautiful grounds of the old place and marveling at the violets, which lifted their heads from every possible cranny about the house and talking over the cordiality which they had been receiving by those upon whom they had no claim, and they were filled with amiable satisfaction. Life looked attractive. They had been very grateful to Miss Lydia Carew for leaving their brother her fortune. Now they felt even more grateful to her. She had left them a social position, one which, even after years of neglect, was fit for use. They descended the stairs together with their arms clasped about each other's waists, and as they did so presented a placid and pleasing sight. They entered their drawing-room with the intention of brewing a cup of tea and drinking it in calm sociability in the twilight. But as they entered the room, they became aware of a lady who was already seated at their tea-table regarding their old Wedgwood china with the air of a connoisseur. There were a number of, peculi there were a number of peculiarities about this intruder. To begin with, she was hatless, quite as if she was an inhabitant of the house and was costumed in a prim, lilac-colored dress of the style of two decades past. But the greater peculiarity was the resemblance this lady bore to a faded daguerreotype. If looked at one way, she was perfectly discernible. If looked at at another, she went out in a sort of blur. Notwithstanding this comparative invisibility, she exhaled a delicate perfume of sweet lavender, very pleasing to the nostrils of the Miss Boggs, who stood looking at her in gentle and unprotesting surprise. "'I beg your pardon,' began Miss Prudence, the younger of the Miss Boggs, "'but—' But at this moment the daguerreotype became a blur, and Miss Prudence found herself addressing empty space.'
The Miss Boggs were irritated. They had never encountered any mysteries in Iowa. They began an impatient search behind doors and porters, even under sofas, though it was quite absurd to suppose that a lady recognizing the merits of the Carew-Wedgwood china would so far forget herself as to crawl under a sofa. When they had given up all hope of discovering the intruder, they saw her standing at the far end of the dining room critically examining the watercolor marine. The elder Miss Boggs started toward her with stern decision, but the little daguerreotype turned with a shadowy smile, became a blur, and an imperceptibility. Miss Boggs looked at Miss Prudence Boggs. If there were ghosts, she said, this would be one. If there were ghosts, said Miss Prudence Boggs, this would be the ghost of Lydia Carew. The twilight was settling into blackness, and Miss Boggs nervously lit the gas while Miss Prudence ran for other teacups, preferring, for reasons superfluous to mention, not to drink out of the Carew china that evening. The next day, on taking up her embroidery frame, Miss Boggs found a number of old-fashioned cross-stitches added to her Kensington. Prudence, she knew, would never have degraded herself by taking a cross-stitch, and the parlor-maid was above taking such a liberty. Miss Boggs mentioned the incident that night at a dinner given by an ancient friend of the Carews. "'Oh, that's the work of Lydia Carew without a doubt,' cried the hostess. "'She visits every new family that moves into the house.' but she never remains more than a week or two with anyone. It must be that she disapproves of them, suggested Miss Boggs. I think that's it, said the hostess. She doesn't like their china or their fiction. I hope she'll disapprove of us, added Miss Prudence. The hostess belonged to a very old Philadelphian family, and she shook her head. I should say it was a compliment for even the ghost of Miss Lydia Carew to approve of one, she said severely. The next morning, when the sisters entered their drawing-room, there were numerous evidences of an occupant during their absence. The sofa-pillows had been rearranged so that the effect of their grouping was less bizarre than that of favored by the Western women. A horrid little Buddhist idol with its eyes fixed on its abdomen had been chastely hidden behind a Dresden shepherdess, as unfit for the scrutiny of polite eyes and on the table where Miss Prudence did work in watercolors, after the fashion of the Impressionists, lay a prim and impossible composition representing a moss rose and a number of heartsier, colored with the caution which modest spinster artists instinctively exercise. "'Oh, there's no doubt it's the work of Miss Lydia Carew,' said Miss Prudence contemptuously. "'There's no mistaking the drawing of that rigid little rose.' Don't you remember those wreaths and bouquets framed among the pictures we got when the Carew pictures were sent to us? I gave some of them to an orphan asylum and burned up the rest. Hush! cried Miss Boggs involuntarily. If she heard you, it it would hurt her feelings terribly. Of course, I mean, and she blushed. It might hurt her feelings, but how perfectly ridiculous! It's impossible! Miss Prudence held up the sketch of the moss rose. That may be impossible in an artistic sense, but it is a palpable thing. Bosh, cried Miss Boggs. But, protested Miss Prudence, how do you explain it? I don't, said Miss Boggs, and she left the room. That evening the sisters made a point of being in the drawing room before dusk came on, and of lighting the gas at the first hint of twilight. They didn't believe in Miss Lydia Carew, but they still meant to be beforehand with her. They talked with unwanted vivacity in a louder tone than was their custom. 
but as they drank their tea, even their utmost verbosity could not make them oblivious to the fact that the perfume of sweet lavender was stealing into the room. They tacitly refused to recognize this odor and all that it indicated, when suddenly, with a sharp crash, one of the old Karoo teacups fell from the tea table to the floor and was broken. The disaster was followed by what sounded like a sigh of pain and dismay. I don't suppose Miss Lydia Carew would ever be as awkward as that, cried the younger Miss Boggs petulantly. Prudence, said her sister with a stern accent. Please try not to be a fool. You brush the cup off with the sleeve of your dress. Your theory wouldn't be so bad, said Miss Prudence, half laughing and half crying, if there were any sleeves to my dress, but as you see, there aren't. And then Miss Prudence had something as near as hysterics as a healthy young woman from the West can have. I wouldn't think such a perfect lady as Lydia Carew, she ejaculated between sobs, would make herself so disagreeable. You may talk about good breeding all you please, but I call such an intrusion exceedingly bad taste. I have a horrible idea that she likes us and means to stay with us. She left those other people because she did not prove of their habits or their grammar. It would just be our luck to please her. Well, I like your egotism, said Miss Boggs. However, the view Miss Prudence took of the case appeared to be the right one. Time went by, and Miss Lydia Carew still remained. When the ladies entered their drawing-room, they would see the little ladylike daguerreotype revolving itself into a blur before one of the family portraits. Or they noticed the yellow sofa cushion, toward which she appeared to feel a peculiar antipathy, had been dropped behind the sofa upon the floor. Or that one of Jane Austen's novels, which none of the family ever read, had been removed from the bookshelves and left open on the table. I cannot become reconciled to it, complained Miss Boggs to Miss Prudence. I wish we'd remained in Iowa where we belong. Of course I don't believe in such a thing. No sensible person would. But I still cannot become reconciled. The liberation was to come, however, in a most unexpected manner. A relative by marriage visited them from the West. He was a friendly man and had much to say, so he talked all through dinner, and afterward followed the ladies to the drawing-room to finish his gossip. The gas in the room was turned very low, and as they entered, Miss Prudence caught sight of Miss Carew in the company attire, sitting in upright propriety in a stiff-backed chair in the extremity of the apartment. Miss Prudence had a sudden idea. "'We will not turn up the gas,' she said in an emphasis to convey private information to her sister, it will be more agreeable to sit here and talk in this soft light. Neither her brother nor the man from the West made any objection. Miss Boggs and Miss Prudence, clasping each other's hands, divided their attention between their corporeal and their incorporeal guests. Miss Boggs was confident that her sister had an idea and was willing to await its development. As the guest from Iowa spoke, Miss Carew bent a politely attentive ear to what he said. Ever since Richards took sick that time, he said briskly, it seemed like he shed all responsibilities. The Mrs. Boggs saw the daguerreotype put up her shadowy head with a movement of doubt and apprehension. The fact of the matter was, Richards didn't seem to scarcely get on the way he might have been expected to. At this consciousless split to the infinitive and the misplacing of the preposition, Miss Carew arose trembling perceptibly. I saw it wasn't no use for him to count on a quick recovery. 
The Mrs. Boggs lost the rest of the sentence, for at the utterance of the double negative Miss Lydia Carew had flashed out, not in a blur, but with mortal haste, as when life goes out at a pistol shot. The man from the West wondered why Miss Prudence should have cried at so pathetic a part of his story. Thank goodness! And their brother was amazed to see Miss Boggs kiss Miss Prudence on the cheek with passion and energy. It was the end. Miss Carew returned no more. That story was stellar. I can totally relate in spirit to the spirit of Miss Carew. Being a retired English teacher, if I was a ghost, I know I would bolt at the first sign of any grammatical mistakes. Just kidding. Although it is difficult to rein in the red pencilitis that most English teachers have, I'm not that picky, and I would never correct anyone's grammar unwarrantedly. But it is tempting. Perhaps after death I'll just haunt about, circling grammatical mistakes in red paint. Dripping red paint. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. In Los Angeles, Adrian Gomez also dealt with goats. Goats? Um, oh, boy. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies.